The title of this evening's talk is Practice Here, Practice There, Practice Everywhere. So, here we all are, coming very close to the end of our intensive practice period, here. Soon to be taking yourself and taking your practice out there, wherever uh, there is for each of you. Which for most of you actually, or maybe all of us, uh, will entail a much longer period of intensive practice with the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. And I think that many of us uh, come to the end of a retreat with uh, some of the same thoughts and some of the same feelings that are not so dissimilar uh, to those that we maybe came into retreat with. For many people, uh, though there's a feeling of excitement and readiness to go into an extended period of intensive practice. For some, just before it's time to enter in, there might be the feeling that, well, I'm just not quite finished out here. Just a a few more days. Another week. I have a few more things to do before I'm ready to go in. I need another few days. I need another week at least so that I can do all all the things that need to be done and then, and then I'll be ready to go into retreat. I see some smiles, I know. You all, some of you had that experience. And it seems that some of us have similar thoughts when it's time to come out. An excitement and a readiness to go out into the larger world. And yet maybe there's such, such thoughts as, well, just a little more time. A few more days, a week, oh, a month would be really good so that I can really do what needs to be done here in this retreat with my practice. And then I'll be finished. And then I'll be ready to come out. And then I'll really be ready to go back out there. And sometimes on either end, the going in to retreat and coming out of retreat, There might be some degree of reluctance, resistance, maybe based in some fear of the seeming unknown or fear of the seeming known or essentially maybe just fear of change, fear of ending one way and entering into another way. And for some, there might be, have been, a great urgency, kind of, spiritual urgency. Just can't wait, just so ready to go into retreat. And then on the going out part, it might be the same, a kind of urgency, maybe not a spiritual urgency, but maybe, uh, to get out, the end. Just can't wait to get out. Just can't wait to be done. 
<laughs> Get out of here quickly. So that kind of urgency. So you might check in with yourself uh, and see if there might be some of these kinds of thoughts and feelings. Some similar patterns maybe in your mind uh, and heart that uh, are coming up right now here at the end of the retreat that maybe you experienced uh, to some degree in some similar ways as you were preparing to come here or that you may have felt at the onset of the retreat. And of course, we may not feel much of any anxiety or much of any other uh, strong mental states uh, in either direction, entering into or coming out of a retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might just feel a a clean, clear, open readiness and a happiness without any particular expectations or particular worries about moving on to the next thing, moving on to the next phase and form that life will take. At a retreat that I taught, uh, I think it was at the Insight Meditation Society a number of years ago, One person described coming out of retreat as feeling, she said she felt like she was descending, like she was landing. She said she was feeling the the force of gravity, like coming back down to earth. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swicart regarding his experience traveling in outer space. And I like to share that with you. you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. There are no frames. There are no boundaries. You're really out there going 25,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery with which you're seeing and the speed with which you know you're going. That contrast, the mix of those two things, really comes through. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience here that other people can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing that you've done that deserves that, that earned that. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment. And it comes through you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. And you look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time. And you know all those people down there. They're like you. They are you. And somehow you represent them. A sensing element. That point out on the end. And that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. 
The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. You're out on that forefront and you have to bring that back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. It tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. And so that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. And as we all know, there is a change about to happen. And also, of course, we're certainly aware to the various changes that occurred during this time in retreat. So reflecting on the supports available to you as you begin to make the change out of retreat life and into the larger world. One change being the pace of life, at least outwardly. Life appears and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice here how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and how incessantly things change all around us. Even in the slowed down pace of retreat life. This understanding, this wisdom is really a great support and a a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice to practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness, we could say, or the moment-to-momentness, in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And maybe you've had some taste of the impersonality of change. You certainly tasted that we can't stop change. And that even though we might try to hold on to something, to hold on to anything, that it's not possible. And maybe you've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration and mindfulness, acceptance, kindness towards yourself and towards others, as all of this developed over these weeks, you've had some glimpse that whatever it is that you experience in the body, the mind, and the heart, that any of these experiences come together 
because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it, whatever it is, changes quite quickly or maybe just simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, has a very deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and our aspirations and what we choose to do or to not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make, more connection and more clarity in our relationships to others, more clarity with what's important and what's appropriate, what's wholesome and what's really, truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in our retreat life, life is pared down. A life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is certainly a change from here to there. Life in retreat offers really very little distraction. We sit, we walk, we listen to Dharma talks and morning reflections. We eat, you do your yogi job. I do my yogi teacher job. We sleep. You've spoken just a little bit every few days during your practice meetings. Maybe a word or two during your yogi job at times if necessary. So it's a pretty simple life here in retreat. And within this container of simplicity... You've been encouraged and supported to develop a depth and a clarity of focused attention and to mindfully pay attention to what occurs in the body, in the mind, in the heart. What occurs with each breath. And you've been invited to sense and to see and to know Is the mind, is the heart opening to, connecting with, and receiving, for instance, the breath or various other occurrences in the body-mind continuum? Or is the attention spaced out or disconnected, separated or caught or stuck in some physical phenomena or some thought form? With all of this practice and all of this learning, bringing us closer and closer to sensing, seeing, and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, and a sense of well-being. You're learning to recognize, respect, care about, and attend to all of these cycles within your mind, heart, and body. 
This sensing, seeing, and knowing is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. We're really, all of us, so similar. No matter who we are, where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our our color, our gender orientation. Really, we're all just variations on themes of being human. And we're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language. It affects our actions. Seeing into our own mind and heart affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. There's the possibility of engaging in the refuges and precepts as part of one's daily practice. So maybe beginning the day chanting them to oneself. This can be a a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions in our daily life. And there's a particular rendition of the precepts that was written by Stephanie Kaza from the Green Gulch Zen Farm. And I think that I may have uh, read this uh, on the opening night of the retreat. But I'd like to share it with you again uh, because it's really uh, particularly relevant to daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. 
knowing how deeply our lives intertwine. We vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess any thing or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, as may also unfold for most of you or some of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in retreat and then outside of retreat, out of a retreat setting, in 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 a way that serves and supports the process and the purification of the heart and the mind. And certainly sometimes this has happened through the conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. And I think, for sure, for all of us, as practice deepens and as it matures, there's more and more often a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to. And it's very often around quite ordinary mundane aspects of life. So a personal example, and I usually offer this particular example at the end of a retreat uh, that I'm teaching because it's still to some degree um, in place for me in my life. There was the time when I would get into my car to go somewhere and I would automatically turn on the radio. And at some point, I really began to notice this as a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all the time. So I'd begin driving somewhere, and my hand would kind of automatically begin to move towards the radio knob. As you well know, the force of habit is incredibly strong. So I'd mindfully bring my hand back down, and that would happen, doesn't hardly ever happen anymore, but it used to happen fairly often. But at some point, I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. Well, that was wonderful. 
because then the choice was available to or not to. So a very simple example. There's many we could share, I'm sure, in our life. So looking at another change. In this simple and a quiet space of retreat, there certainly may have been some big days and or maybe some big events for you during this uh, these weeks of retreat. And for some people, an especially big day or an especially big event uh, is uh, something as mundane as our laundry days. And for me, there were uh, times in the early years of my practice of sitting uh, long intensive retreats when laundry day was such a huge addition to my day that I would find myself planning for it or maybe just thinking about it uh, the night before it was to happen when I was trying to go to sleep and it would just take over my mind. And then it would be the very first thing that would come into my mind when I woke up that morning. So maybe some of you have had your own version of that on our laundry days. And then how about the big event of the midday meal? Now there's a really big event for a lot of people. What will we have for lunch today? Or as you're walking for lunch today, or maybe you're standing in the lunch line for today, what will we have for lunch tomorrow? (laughs) Or maybe the big event of having a one-on-one practice meeting, the anticipation, maybe the rehearsal, the worry, the excitement, all kinds of things for that particular event. There's a poem by Nanao Sakaki, who was a wandering Japanese poet who uh, died uh, some years ago, not a long time ago, but a few years ago. And this poem he called, A Big Day. Getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with a neighbor, the sun goes down, a big day. Many years ago, Nanao used to spend time up at the Lama Foundation, which, uh, as the crow flies, is about 20 minutes from here. And he'd show up at Lama uh, with his small knapsack and a sleeping bag. And he'd stay up at the Lama Foundation for a few days, and they were always very, very happy to put him up. And then he would head out into the mountains with just this, his little knapsack and his sleeping bag. And he'd often be gone for maybe a couple of weeks, at least a few days and sometimes a few weeks, and then he'd be back at Lama again. A very dear friend of mine, uh, who was the coordinator up at the Lama Foundation during those years, told me a story of one of these times when Nanao... um, had come in for a day or two from the mountains. He'd been out in the mountains for a while. And he asked her and a, another friend who lived up at, up at Lama if they would like to come out to his camp for, for dinner in a few days. Well, my friend said they were just totally delighted. This was something very special, uh, something that had never, ever been offered before. 
So on the appointed day and at the appointed time, my friend and the other invitee uh, found their way out to Nanao's camping spot by following his, his very careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there wasn't any food ready or in view for dinner. And he told them not to bring anything at all with them, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was plenty of food. Well, my friend thought maybe they'd made a mistake. Maybe this was the wrong day. But Nanao was really delighted to see them, and he welcomed them heartily. And then he said, well, now let's go out and find dinner. And so my friend said that they walked, and they picked, and they dug various wild foods. They came back and they built a fire, a campfire outside, and cooked what needed cooking. And she said they had an incredibly delicious dinner. She said they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for a few days or weeks with almost nothing and come back strong, healthy, and very happy. Once someone in a practice meeting spoke about the simplicity of life Uh, on retreat is having a really good taste. So we taste it. We taste this good taste. And we take it with us. And it wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes in some big ways. And of course, as we all know, life outside of retreat can certainly be quite complex at times our home and our family life, our sangha and our monastic community life, our work life, our social life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And often we do this little by little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do. We make choices in the ways that we spend time with family and with friends and with partners and with community members. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really, truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, every aspect of our life. We have the possibility of expanding and deepening that good taste, or this good taste, that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course, there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we certainly must continue with in our life outside of retreat. The taste of simplicity has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It it affects and it inspires the way that we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy. Even in the midst of complex activity and relationships and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat, 
we learn, we, we see, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin then to feel more balance within ourselves and within our life as a whole. And we find that we have more energy and more time available in our life for the whole of our life and the specifics of our life to more and more directly and clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we connect reconnect, I should say, to a larger world. Simplicity being really a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. So considering this possibility of our whole life as our practice, how can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? I think it's really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we begin to integrate a clear, focused, mindful attention based in kindness into all dimensions of our being making our body, our speech, our play, our work, our creative endeavors, all part of our practice. So for instance, we can find many moments throughout a day when we can just very simply bring our attention to the sensations of the breath or the sensations of the body moving or offer a metaphrase out to someone or to ourself, any moment of any day, in almost any circumstance, in pretty much any activity. So from this perspective, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really all of the conditions, all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. All of the joys and the irritations, all of the annoyances and the delights, all of the frustrations and the satisfactions, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the likes and the dislikes, all that we experience in life in retreat and in life outside of retreat. This is all a mirror for our practice. Uh, A woman who sat a retreat that I 
taught in Israel quite a number of years ago now. Uh, she had, long before I met her, lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. And she told me a, a really wonderful story, uh, a mirror uh, of a particular and difficult situation in this community being the perfect practice. She said that in this community, in Gurdjieff's community in France, there was an old man who was a very difficult, irascible fellow who lived there when she was there. And he was quite messy. She said he was quite messy and quite argumentative. She said he wouldn't cooperate and he wouldn't help with things and basically he didn't get along with others in the community. She said that no one there liked him very much and that he himself really didn't seem to like very many of the people in the community either. But he tried. He tried and he stayed for quite a long time. He tried to stay in the community. But it was really difficult for him as well as difficult for other people. So difficult, she said, that he finally left and he went to Paris. He said, she said he, it, he just couldn't bear it anymore. So, but Gurdjieff uh, followed him to Paris. And he tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, no, he couldn't do it. It was just much too hard to be there. So Gurdjieff, after discussing it with him for a while, and he, he finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back which the man couldn't refuse because he was a very poor man. And so he did return. But when he arrived, she said everyone in the community was aghast. They were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there because they themselves actually had to pay to live in that community. So Gurdjieff, she said he called a meeting and he listened to everyone's complaints. And she said there were a lot of complaints. And she said, then he laughed. And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness, and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. The conditions of our life the people in our lives are all really part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread. They're yeast for the purification of the heart and the mind. Yeast for our awakening. They're yeast for our liberation. And in relationship to the the teachings and the practices of the four Brahma-viharas, the four divine abidings. Uh, there's one teaching uh, about this amidst the 84,000 teachings that the Buddha is said to have offered uh, during his lifetime, where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings. Metta, Karuna Mudita and Upeka, unconditional loving kindness and compassion and empathetic joy and equanimity. Each of the sons, because of his particular age and personality and specific karmic predicaments, karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother 
one of the divine abidings in this teaching. Well, I only have three sons, but they have managed to be uh, some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can often be some of our very best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need from us, and what they give to us, and what they show us. So an example, my two oldest sons, who will be 55 years old this June, this coming June, they're identical twins. And they continue over all these years to show me, to teach me really, a relationship that's very, I think, very rare. They're very close friends. And although when they were little boys, they would fight with each other as children do, But over all these years, they've never talked about each other or never talked to each other in negative or judgmental ways. And no matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done or not done, and no matter how the other's life is going, they're not each other's keeper meaning that they're respectful of each other, but they're not codependent with each other. And I think it's really a very rare relationship. And I'm often, often uh, in awe of it. And I learn from it quite often. I've never told them this. I think it's time for me to tell them. (laughs) They're old enough to understand at 55, don't you think? (laughs) Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal to the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And so we include it all. We learn, and we learn at the same time, even though we include it all, we learn to not cling to any of it. In a poem, uh, it's translated from the Turkish uh, of Edip Kansever, I think that's the right pronunciation. The translator is Richard Tillinghast. <clears throat> the poem is called Table. A man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window, sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life, he put there. 
Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine, the man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. The key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a strong and clear mindful attention that's deeply grounded in concentration and kindness. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed so wonderfully over these, these weeks. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this, when we reconnect with the larger world. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness and investigation for how it is in retreat like this as we reconnect with the larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration and mindfulness and investigation is not usually totally sustained outside of a retreat setting, the concentration, mindfulness, and investigative capacities that developed along with the multidimensional facets of understanding, of wisdom that have blossomed for each of you in this retreat are really a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. There's a change, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness concentration, investigation, the heart's resolve, or the heart's release that occurred through the metta practice and the continued blossoming of wisdom are always, always available to us. Many years ago at the end of a two-month retreat that I sat with my, one of my Burmese teachers, the Venerable Saida Upandita, and two other uh, Burmese monks. <clears throat> At the end of that two-month retreat, I had a conversation with one of the monks. And I asked him if there was any advice he might give me around uh, taking practice into the whole of my life. And this was his response. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. That's, that's all he said. 
but it stuck with me. I thought it was great advice. Simple, clear, good advice. And there are some particular ways that I and others have found uh, to be very helpful in bringing uh, a simple yet direct and immediate focus of mindful attention into our lives. So one suggestion that uh, comes from uh, a teaching colleague is that at the end of each hour of the day, take just one or two minutes to stop and be still and simply connect with the breath or the movement in the body or some simple sensation in the body. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very direct, focused, mindful time, with each of these moments having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry your practice into your daily life is to remember at moments during the day to touch into the into physical sensation, not every hour like I just said, but sometime during various times during the day to touch into physical sensation through contact. So just the simple connection of the feet on the ground or on the floor. The bottom, your bottom <coughs> touching the chair, a chair. Hands touching each other. Simple. Mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and strengthened every time we do this. So also maybe remembering to offer a metaphrase to the drivers that are all around you when you're stuck in traffic or when you're standing in a line in the grocery store offering metta to somebody else in the line. I think really that the only hard thing about doing these very brief, what we could call mini meditations, is to remember to do them. The hardest thing is to remember to do them. I know some people who uh, put little notes to themselves around their home or in their workplace or in their study to remind themselves to check in. So maybe a note on the bathroom mirror. Breath. Or maybe a little stand-up note on your desk, at home or at work, still breathing, or metta now, or here now. There was a fellow uh, on staff uh, at IMS some years ago who worked in the front office who had a small stand-up note on his desk that said buttocks, (laughs) reminding him to bring his attention to the touch points of his bottom on the chair every now and then. It also brought a lot of laughs when people came and noticed his little reminder note. The former director of the Forest Refuge, which is the long-term practice center at the Insight Meditation Society, um, he programmed his computer uh, to sound the ring of a mindfulness bell every 45 minutes to remind him to just stop whatever he was doing and check in with his breath for a couple of moments. And I found out about this 
in the midst of a meeting we were having. We were in his office having a meeting and the, the bell rang and he stopped. He just stopped. So I stopped and we breathed for a few minutes. I said, wow, what a great idea, Eric. That is really good. So I looked forward to going in for meetings with him because I got to stop. We got to stop. Walking meditation can really be be very important and actually quite powerful, quite a powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing to connect with and strengthen concentration and mindfulness. Walking practice does that. And I think that many of us, or probably all of us, uh, walk maybe at least a few miles just going from place to place through a day or certainly uh, at least through a week. And we can make some of this walking uh, a time of practice. When I, when I lived at uh, IMS as a resident teacher for staff, my work uh, room and my living space, this, which was the same room, was up on the second floor of the main building. And because I did many, many practice meetings with staff and had lots of other meetings within a week, I really didn't have time uh, during the day to do walking meditation. So I decided that every time I went up and down the stairs would be my walking practice. And I did this pretty uh, diligently most days. And at one point, a staff member member came in for his practice meeting, and he was obviously uh, quite agitated. And with some difficulty, he told me that he was very upset because I, he said I was ignoring him. He said that he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. <laughs> and he was wondering if I was angry with him. And I told him that going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time. And that uh, I certainly hadn't abandoned him, nor was I angry with him. It's just that I was practicing as deeply as I could going up and down the stairs. Well, needless to say, maybe, that completely changed his attitude. And he said, oh, he was happy for me, and he told me he thought it was a great idea. People may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate practice into your life in small ways. But do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And of course, it's really, really helpful to connect with others who practice. We certainly can see this and feel the benefit of it, as some of you have mentioned in a retreat setting. If you're not connected, at least sometimes, with a group, even just a group of two or three to sit with once in a while, check in and see if there is a sitting group in your area. And if there's not, start one. Which might mean just asking one or two people who you know like to meditate or who might like to learn to meditate to join you once a week or maybe every other week. It's very important. And I know many of you are connected to groups, but some of you aren't. So you can sit together 
sit first together for maybe 30 minutes, 20 minutes maybe, if it's a beginning group. And then maybe read something out loud about the teachings and practice. Or maybe listen to a Dharma talk online or if someone has one playing it on a CD player. And then maybe taking turns each week to who chooses the reading or what to listen to. And then afterwards have some Dharma discussion together about what you've listened to or what you've read. And maybe also a little bit about each of you about your own practice. And I think it can be helpful at times to pick a theme for a week or maybe for a couple of weeks to focus on. We need the connection and we need the support and we need the inspiration of others who are interested in the Buddha's teachings and practice. The Buddha, in a conversation with one of his chief disciples, Ananda, spoke about the tremendous importance about the connection with spiritual friends. In this conversation, the Venerable Ananda says to the Buddha, Half this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends, companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responds to Ananda saying, Do not say that, Ananda. It is the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment as much as possible be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is really one of the great arts in life. Perhaps the greatest. And it can take place anytime, anywhere when we have the intention to live awake. As we go out into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, kindness, and joy increase. It's inevitable that peace increases, that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and a compassionate life increases. In another short poem from Nanao Sakaki, If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. (laughs) So closing the talk this evening with a poem by Native American poet Joy Harjo. She calls this Eagle Poem. To pray you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, 
can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing, and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, river, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, we see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in knowing we are made of all this, and breathe knowing we are truly blessed, because we're born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.